He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. This isn't normal, or rather, it shouldn't be. Things that for many decades were givens, the checks and balances on the executive, the role of the judiciary or the civil service or the electoral commission, a media free from interference or vilification, now appear vulnerable. We're seeing politicians move in directions that are deeply and clearly deleterious to basic democratic government. It's Emily Maitlis, until recently the host of the BBC's flagship daily TV news show, Newsnight. And there she was delivering the McTaggart Lecture this week in Edinburgh. That's an annual media industry address in which notable media figures assess the state of the media in the UK and the wider world. And she said that a whole host of things had gone wrong there with British democracy under the chaotic recent rule of the Conservative Party, including for the media. And she was specific about political pressure upon the BBC. Put this in the context of the BBC board, where another active agent of the Conservative Party, a former Downing Street spin doctor and former advisor to BBC rival GB News now sits, acting as the arbiter of BBC impartiality. According to the Financial Times, he's attempted to block the appointment of journalists he considers damaging to government relations provoking Labour's deputy leader, among others, to call it Tory cronyism at the heart of the BBC. Emily Maitlis went on to say she'd been censured by the BBC herself for one broadcast that was critical of the Prime Minister's communications director, and that had the sole goal, she said, of appeasing the under-pressure government. And she said more about undue pressure on the UK's public broadcaster, including reviews that were launched of the BBC's operations just for political purposes. Now, obviously, there's a lot going on there in the UK, with the media caught in the middle. But here in New Zealand, public broadcasting is also being reviewed in a pretty fundamental way. Legislation is now before Parliament to replace RNZ and TVNZ with a new public media entity in just seven months' time, raising concerns about exactly what it will do and who will have control over it. And with that in mind, Stuff This Week reported a poll of its own readers had suggested about twice as many people oppose the merger of RNZ and TVNZ as support it. We can't say how many people were actually against it. That Stuff report didn't tell Stuff readers how many of them had cast a vote in that poll, and the self-selecting nature of the sample makes the result entirely unscientific anyway, and not really all that newsworthy. But Stuff did report the Minister of Broadcasting's response. It doesn't worry me. I think we've got a bit of work to do, and once we start showing how this entity can work, I think that might change. It was at the start of this year that the government finally confirmed it wanted to create and fund a new public media entity to begin next year. RNZ and TVNZ will become subsidiaries of it just seven months from now, operating with a new charter, setting out its public service obligations. In mid-May, Budget 2022 revealed just how much the government would put into it, up until 2026. And at that time, former New Zealand Herald editor-in-chief Gavin Ellis said the devil would be in the details that still weren't clear. And back then, he warned too many ministries were involved in it too. I have no idea what the structure of this entity is going to be like. This entity will be monitored by more state agencies than ever before. There are at least four and as many as six that will have some form of oversight into what it's doing. If we don't do something to ensure the absolute 
independence of this entity from any forms of government control over and above annual appropriations of funding for public good, uh, then it will not gain the trust of the public. Now, the following month, the shape of the new entity was set out in the Aotearoa New Zealand Public Media Bill, and at a subsequent select committee hearing, National Party Broadcasting spokesperson Melissa Lee also claimed that setting it up as an autonomous Crown entity would make it too vulnerable to ministerial influence and direction. But on Media Watch soon after, the Media and Broadcasting Minister Willie Jackson said Gavin Ellis and others need not worry about interference. But he's got all this scepticism about, you know, independence. And uh, I think that once you get your board in place, they'll work it all out. It's the establishment board also will work, will work things out. This nonsense about us wanting to direct and manage everything, as Gavin is trying to say, because we've, what did, what, what did he say yesterday? Uh, something about, um, oh, why didn't they send it up as an independent entity, right? Do you really think that all or the, the government will be managing interviews or trying to change uh, the, the, the stuff? Yes, we've, it's already covered in the Broadcasting Act in terms of editorial independence, and we'll strengthen that up, no doubt, because editorial independence is everything. Okay. Otherwise, you're going to have me there or other ministers trying to guide everyone through, and this aut- autonomous um, entity is, is something that's already in place with with Tamangai Pahor, with with um, Totafiti, with New Zealand on air. You know, it, it doesn't stop anyone from criticising or doing what they want as they should do. That was the Broadcasting and Media Minister Willie Jackson on Media Watch back in June. Now this week, Stuff also quoted Willie Jackson as saying the select committee process would give people Opportunity Plus to have their say. But right now, you've got less than a fortnight to do it in writing. The Economic Development, Science and Innovation Select Committee is taking submissions only up to the 8th of September. Now, one outfit that's putting a lot of effort into its submission is KUITU, the Centre for Informed Futures at the University of Auckland, led by former Prime Minister's Science Advisor Sir Peter Gluckman and Gavin Ellis, who's an affiliate of the centre. At a workshop this week, they gathered around 30 media executives, experts and lawyers to scrutinise the Aotearoa New Zealand Public Media Bill. They heard from the chief executives of the state-owned outlets, which will cease to exist, Simon Power of TVNZ and RNZ's boss Paul Thompson, and they heard independent opinions on the legislation from two overseas experts as well. And one of those was Dr Dennis Miller, who grew up here, but became a journalist and editor overseas at papers including the Sydney Morning Herald, The Age in Melbourne and The Times in London. Now he's a senior research fellow at the Centre for Advancing Journalism in Melbourne with a weekly slot on ABC Radio called Behind the Media. And when the government first signalled a new public media entity blending commercial TV and public service, Dr Muller told Media Watch this. The old days of silos, of, of thinking of digital radio, television and print as separate are over. There would certainly be concerns about the effect of merging a non-commercial with a commercial organisation. But it's not an insuperable problem, in my view, because newspapers, good newspapers, have been doing this for decades, uh, separating the commercial side of the operation from the editorial side at the Asian Sydney Morning Herald, where I worked for 23 years, had an extremely strict editorial culture. Myself included, the journalists were extremely prickly about it, and it had strong editorial leadership. So I don't think it's an insuperable problem, but certainly you need to go into that with your eyes open to make sure that you were protecting the integrity of both the news service and the program content. 
That was Dennis Muller talking on Media Watch two and a half years ago. Now, via video from Melbourne this week, he told that Koi Tu workshop in Auckland that the Aotearoa New Zealand public media legislation didn't adequately safeguard editorial freedom. And he told me afterwards, recent experience in Australia showed that that mattered. The Charter requires this new entity to demonstrate that it's editorially independent, but uh, there's no protection in the Charter or anywhere else in the legislation that I could see no protection from government retaliation in meeting its editorial independence objectives, it reports in a way which displeases the government. We've certainly seen it happen in the United Kingdom, and I have personally and up close seen it happening here in Australia, where politicians are very much antagonistic towards public broadcasting. And I think that if there's going to be a change of this kind that's Uh, proposed in New Zealand, it's an opportunity to shore up the independence of public broadcasting. The legislation as drafted weakens it because the existing charter of Radio New Zealand is actually much stronger. When you say retaliation, Dennis, do you mean that if the government, uh, or rather the scrutiny of the government by this new public media entity is strong, uh, they will try and prevent uh, this entity from working in the public interest and reporting properly? Or, or do you mean uh, it's vulnerable in terms of funding? Its lifeblood could be cut if it displeases the government and that, that uh, this legislation makes it vulnerable to in the form that it is now? I think both. There's a problem that uh, a government that was minded to interfere with the public broadcaster in New Zealand could easily do so uh, in this current framework. Once again, i and drawing on my Australian experience here, we have seen the funding to the ABC cut in real terms since 2014. And that's largely because the Abbott, Turnbull and Morrison governments were hostile to the ABC. And the third way in which the Australian government at least has used pressure to uh, retaliate against the ABC has been by running a whole series of pointless inquiries into uh, the impact of the ABC on competition in broadcasting. And we've seen similar things happening with the BBC in the UK, with successive Conservative governments over there, also using funding uh, and inquiries to uh, distract and bleed out the energy from the public broadcasters by this sort of constant hostility. It's Dennis Muller, a veteran New Zealand journalist now at the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University, and he was speaking to me there after addressing a workshop in Auckland this week about legislation for a new public media entity here. Now, that meeting was held under the Chatham House rule, meaning we can't say precisely what was said by whom specifically without their express permission. But plenty of people at the meeting shared Dr Muller's concern about the entity's vulnerability to political influence, and among them was the events organiser, Gavin Ellis. One of the things that came out of it very, very quickly was a sense that the bill has yet to be made fit for purpose. So it is possible to have independence and government funding. What is the threat to the editorial independence of this new public media entity created by adopting that structure? The the threat is that an autonomous Crown entity, which is what is proposed, must have regard to government policy. Okay, there is a guarantee 
of editorial independence in the bill, uh, I think that that guarantee is less than watertight. And there are many, many ways in which influence can be uh, exerted. I I don't believe that uh, it's proper or appropriate for a public media entity that is to gain and retain the trust of the public to have any possibility of government interference or influence. Now, I'm not concerned about today's government. I'm not concerned about Willie Jackson's tenure as as communications minister. I think he's doing a good job. I'm not concerned necessarily about the next government if there's a change of party. What I'm concerned about is a piece of legislation that may be around for 25 or 50 years and we don't know what government we're going to have in 10 or 15 years' time. I call it the Trump factor. One media executive here today said they felt this legislation and that autonomous crown entity structure and the appearance, the perception of the possibility of of interference could damage its reputation even before it begins on day one. I agree entirely. It's absolutely vital that this new organisation begins with as much public trust as it can possibly generate. If there is a a sense that it's in some way open to influence by government, then it won't have that trust. Look at the Public Interest Journalism Fund. There were suggestions that the media had been bought off by it. That's a complete nonsense, of course, but it doesn't matter because perception is everything. And trust isn't based on fact. Trust is based on perception. Some legal minds commenting on the bill at the event, your first workshop, said they felt there are clear signs of haste in the bill, Uh, so uh, things that should have been better drafted. But look, it's got a charter for the organisation. Can't some of the problems with the organisation that were expressed in the workshop, the feeling that it didn't adequately give people a sense of what kind of output, what kind of content would be created by this organisation or why. That could be fixed by tweaking the charter, which will, after all, be reviewed every five years, just as the one for Radio New Zealand was uh, or was supposed to be. Look, this charter has fewer obligations and is less aspirational than the existing Radio New Zealand charter. I mean, you are required to perform in ways that this entity will not be required to perform. Why? Why should the new entity have a lesser requirement on its staff and on its board. What's one of the things that would, that would uh, give you that concern? The Radio New Zealand Charter, the first principle, an independent public service broadcaster, the public's radio company's purpose is to serve the public interest. That is not in the new charter. Secondly, freedom of thought and expression are foundations of democratic society and the public radio company, as a public service broadcaster, plays an essential role in exercising these freedoms. Why was that not simply cut and pasted? Future technology, you argued, wasn't terribly well incorporated, uh, or the possibility of it, into this new charter. But how can you legislate for that if, if there are technological applications we can't even foresee for the moment? How can a bill be written that would incorporate that? Well, for for starters, you don't define broadcasting the way it's defined in the Act, which is the same way it's defined in the very old now Broadcasting Act. In fact, I would argue that you don't use the word broadcasting. We 
need in this legislation writing that is non-prescriptive in technological terms. In other words, it allows for what we have now, but it recognises explicitly that what we have now will be very different from what we have even 10 years from now. We shouldn't get bogged down in trying to second guess what technology may be, but to ensure that we lay open the way for the adoption of whatever technologies serve the purposes of the Crown entity. Technology is not an end to itself. And this isn't all about just the new entity. The bill is drafted in such a way as it says the new entity has to coexist within a wider system where there are other producers of public interest, public good uh, journalism and, and, and content. Also that there are alternative funding agencies like New Zealand On Air, uh, Māori Broadcasting and so on, and they must take account of those. But the way the bill is drafted, not many people in the room <laughs> seem to know what that really meant or what obligations that really puts upon this new Aotearoa New Zealand public media entity. No, that's absolutely right. And it wasn't on the basis of a lack of intelligence on the part of the people in the room. It's simply not there. It's, it doesn't say, indeed, it doesn't say what limits there should be on these interactions because there's a possibility it has the potential to distort the market. Um, those sort of things need to be prevented um, for everybody's good, not only uh, the good of, of other media, but in a way for the good of the enterprise itself because... Uh, it needs to know that it is not all things to all people. A big audience means a diverse audience, and, and that's all to the good. Uh, I don't mean that. What, what, I don't mean that they should not do that. What I mean is that they should not use the security of funding that that brings to their enterprise to have an unfair advantage in the commercial marketplace, for example. But the requirement to take account of these other organisations, be they other media organisations, other uh, public agencies and funding organisations, not really clear at all what that really means, whether it means don't double up on what they're doing or commission things with them in mind. No, it, it's not clear. Um, but that doesn't mean you don't try to do it. At the moment, too much of this bill leaves out those things that are in the too hard basket. I mean, there is, for example, uh, virtually nothing about that relationship between its commercial, non-commercial operations beyond preserving what Radio New Zealand does now. It needs to at least give some indication on the way that the entity should act in certain circumstances. Right, because if you draft a bill that gives them very tight, very strongly and specifically worded obligations, that becomes a really hard yardstick to meet. And if they're being monitored by, I think, as you've also pointed out, a range of different ministries could make life very difficult, give them very little room to manoeuvre. Oh, indeed. And it, it, being overly prescriptive uh, will set it up to fail. Uh, and that can't be allowed to happen. Look, this new entity is an extremely good idea. I'm enthusiastic about it. I'm excited by it because it's the opportunity to set up something for the 21st century. It's like a clean sheet of paper, if you like to really set up the world's first for-purpose digital media operation. That was Gavin Ellis, former editor-in-chief at the New Zealand Herald and an affiliate of Koi2, the Centre for Informed Futures at the University of Auckland, which this week held a workshop of media executives, experts and lawyers to pinpoint potential problems in the Aotearoa New Zealand public media bill, which is currently before Parliament.
and it's holding another workshop on Wednesday this coming week to suggest solutions and prepare a submission to Parliament's Economic Development, Science and Innovation Committee, which is taking public submissions on the bill until the 8th of September.